1: It was a moment considered unimaginable in 21st century America, the U.S. Supreme Court eliminating the constitutional right to abortion. The bans were immediate, along with the horror stories of shuttered clinics and women denied emergency medical care. I'll never
2: forget one of the doctors just ripping off his gloves, throwing them at the trash and saying, I can't help you anymore. You have to go out of state.
1: Almost a year later, the landscape of abortion access is even worse. Republicans remain focused on pushing restrictive laws that Americans
0: overwhelmingly reject. The body inside of the mom's body is not her body, not her body not her choice.
1: The Supreme Court may have empowered the states to reshape abortion law, but reproductive rights remain a national issue that the Biden-Harris administration and Congress must respond to to forge a roadmap for the work that lies ahead. Tonight, from Dallas, in a state considered ground zero in the national fight over abortion rights, this is One Year Post-Roe, a readout special with Vice President Kamala Harris. Thank you for joining me on this special edition of The Readout. My guest for the hour is Vice President Kamala Harris. But because this is such an important issue to so many Americans, we also wanted to bring around this table people whose lives and work were directly affected by the elimination of the right to an abortion. Joining me are Genesis Sanchez, an abortion rights advocate, Amanda Zaroski lead plaintiff in the abortion access lawsuit against the state of Texas, Shannon Brewer, executive director of the Las Cruces Women's Health Center in New Mexico, and Dr. Todd Ivey, who is an OBGYN gyn right here in the state of Texas. I want to thank all of you um, for being here, but I do want to start with you, Madam Vice President. And we know this is a big news cycle. There's lots of news going on. Um, But we really wanted to focus on this because this was a huge loss, I think, for so many people. Um, And I appreciate you being here for this conversation. But I would love to know first how you felt, um, not only as the first woman... Vice President of the United States, but also as a former prosecutor, um, as a mamala (laughs) um, to to, to, to two lovelies, um, as an auntie, Mm -hmm. as a woman, as Mm -hmm. an American, Mm -hmm. um, to that moment when you knew that Roe was gone.
3: So, Joy, first of all, thank you for bringing us together for this incredibly important conversation. Four days before... We will recognize one year since the Dobbs decision came down. I was actually that day when I heard that the highest court in our land took a constitutional right from the women of America, from the people of America. I was that day on my way from D.C. to Illinois to do an event on maternal mortality Mm. with Lauren Underwood because, you know, the irony of that moment um, couldn't be more Clear, in terms of the disconnect between those who are fighting to attack this right and and deprive people of this privacy right and those who also have not been leaders on an issue like maternal mortality. Mm -hmm. But I was on my way to Illinois, and, um, you know, in the litany of things that I am, including a mamala and and all of the other things, um, I'm also someone who was motivated to become a lawyer because of people like Thurgood Marshall. One of my inspirations was RBG, and the idea that the highest court in our land just did that and rolled back rights that had been recognized was incredibly shocking. I knew it might happen, the decision had been leaked. I called my husband, I called Doug immediately then because he was the only one that I could really just like let it out with. (laughs) (laughs) Words not for television at this moment. Um, But again, you know, the, the thing about our nation, I believe, one of the strengths of our nation is yes, we are a work in progress. And the progress we have made, one of the attributes has been about our collective fight for the expansion of rights. And this was such a stark restriction of rights that had been recognized. And I immediately knew when that decision came down what it would mean for real people almost immediately in our country, who, for the most part, many will suffer in silence and are alone and without resources of many types. And I was extremely sad for that reason as well when that decision came down, angry, um, you know, and and extremely sad about what it would mean for real people.
1: You know, and I know that, you know, there's obviously there is the great inspiration of Thurgood Marshall um, and all of the great jurists um, that, that have been on the court in the past. But I also have seen an interview um, with your high school best friend. Yes. Who talked about mm-hmm. your other inspiration for becoming a lawyer. Your best friend, when you were in high school, suffered um, incest in her home and ended up living with you and your mom and your sister um, because of it. And and I just, you know, when you think about women who you were defending as a prosecutor, Mm -hmm. that they had been abused in the state of Texas and in the many other states that have now through trigger laws or affirmatively banned abortion, Mm -hmm. a woman who was in the position of your best friend, if they tried to obtain an abortion as a result of being pregnant, in this state, they, there is a bounty that yep. could be placed on them, a cash bounty, yep. on anyone who helped them. They could be committing a crime. Sure. Any doctor who helped them could go to jail for life and lose yep. their license and be fined. I just wonder how you process that as a former prosecutor. So you are correct. I, my best
3: friend in high school, I learned that she was being molested by her stepfather. And I immediately said, well, you have to come live with us. And I called my mother and I told her, and my mother was like, of course she has to come live with us. And she did. She came to live with us. And um, that was one of the reasons that I wanted to become a prosecutor, uh, to protect people who have been the subject of such abuse. And most of my career as a prosecutor was focused on crimes against women and children, crimes of violence. And so one of the issues on the topic of the Dobbs decision is, to your point, laws being proposed and passed that make no exception, Joy, for rape and incest. And and I'm going to be explicit about what that means. It means that so-called leaders are saying that after an individual has experienced such a a crime of violence, a violation to their body, and surviving that, that these so-called leaders would say to that same person, and the next decision you make about your body is not yours either. That's immoral. That's immoral. To take away her ability to decide what happens to her body next. And so when I think about what is happening with these proponents of this approach, you know, I think that if, if I think that one attribute of true leadership is to have some sense of empathy Mm -hmm. and understanding. As opposed to judgment, when people have had those kinds of experiences. And these are the things that are at play. And I and I do want to say, because I think it's very important to say, on this issue, one does not have to abandon their faith mm-hmm. or deeply held beliefs to agree that
1: the government should not be telling her what to do with her body. Yeah. And, you know, sitting beside you um, is Shannon Brewer. And, you know, when people talk about the end of Roe, they usually say the end of Roe, or they just say Dobbs. But the second half of that case is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. And I have a picture of Jackson Women's Health. It was the pink house. It was the last abortion clinic in Mississippi, not just in Jackson, Mississippi, but in the state. And it was your lawsuit against the state for Eliminating access to abortion that winds up being this case, Dobbs versus Jackson, Mississippi, that triggers the end of abortion rights. And, and I, I, you know, and we're looking just at this image of the house that it is now in a consignment shop. Mm. Um, I remember driving by it not long ago and seeing it and being sort of shocked when someone told me that was the pink house. Yes. And I wonder in that moment when you heard
4: that Dobbs was gone, how you felt. Um, I really, I felt like we had gone back in time, actually. That's, that's what I felt. And still to this day, that's what I feel. Um, I feel we, you know, we've let women down. We've, we've, we've set things back so far, and it's, it's going to take forever to get it back. If that ever happens again, it won't be in our lifetime. That, that's how I felt at that time. Um, I felt that all the fighting we had done was all in vain at that moment. It was just, you have all types of feelings during when that took place, from staff, friends, you know, doctors, escorts, everybody who helped with the movement. It it was very emotional for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, it, when, when I think of you, I think of T R M Howard, Doctor T R M Howard, you know, mm-hmm. in in Mississippi, who mm-hmm. risked, uh, you know, arrest providing abortions for women in Mississippi yeah. back in the nineteen you know fifties and sixties. Yeah. You are an activist. You have moved to New Mexico to yeah. continue to
4: help women. I have. I have. I moved to New, New Mexico. Um, Literally, Jackson closed in July. We opened in New Mexico in uh, August. Um, we had already been preparing for it because we knew what was about to come. So we had been trying to figure out how we were going to make sure women uh, continue to have access during this time. Um, and now we, what we've been doing, we've been seeing women from all over. Uh, most of our, most of the women have been from Texas and, that was one of the main reasons we wanted to open there, was to help the Texas women. Um, Mississippi also, but most of Mississ- the—they still, still had um, other states. Yeah. So that's what we've been doing for the last year, is getting clinics open. Um, we're now working in um, Chicago, getting, trying to get a clinic open there.
1: And, you know, Texas is, you know, obviously um, ground zero for this fight. Um, you're a part of that story, um, Amanda, in the sense that you are suing the state. Talk about why.
5: It started out for me as education and advocacy because a lot of people, I think, didn't understand the sweeping impacts that these laws could and are having on real women, including myself. And so it was a big part of just educating people and helping them understand what's truly happening. But now it's become much bigger than that. what I hope now is to give a voice to all of the other women that this is happening to, that it has happened to, that it will happen to. Um, and I hope to give some courage to other women to take similar action in their own states, because we know that this is happening all over the country, and we need to fight back. And so if I can provide a little courage for others, then that's
1: what I'll do. When you, when Roe fell, did you ever imagine that you had a wanted pregnancy? Um, and you wound up needing the same procedure that would be an abortion because of a non-viable pregnancy. Did you imagine that the end of Roe v. Wade could impact you? I mean, your health is forever changed because you could not get an
5: abortion procedure. That's right. I, I did not understand, again, the sweeping impacts um, that we're seeing now. I was pregnant. Um, after a year and a half of, of trying and grueling fertility treatment. Um, I was outraged on behalf of all women in this country, um, including the baby girl that was inside of me at the time. But I didn't understand that not only had this right been taken away from us, which, by the way, everyone should have access to, but we should also have access to safe health care. And I didn't realize that these laws were also going to prevent women from being able to access health care. I just want
4: to throw—please, oh, I'm going to throw a note that's, that's the amazing thing is that a lot of people didn't realize it until after this took place. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've been, you know, fighting and talking to women forever, but people don't ever think that their rights can be taken. So that's why nobody ever took it seriously, even when they saw it on the news, when we were in and out of the courts. Nobody ever took it seriously until afterwards, and, they, and then everybody was like, there's no way that's possible. And I'm like, yeah.
1: Yes,
3: you are right. You know, there's a, a saying I, I often quote from Coretta Scott King. And she said, the fight for civil rights, which is, right, the right of individuals to make decisions for themselves about their own life. Um, the fight for civil rights must be fought in one with each generation. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. point being that if we are not vigilant, we might see these rights go away, so we must be vigilant every day. Yes, yes. And, this is, and this issue, Joy, as you've mentioned, I, you know, it, it's so fundamentally is about freedom. Mm-hmm. Freedom. The freedom and the ability of an individual to make decisions about their own life and literally their own body. And I, I think there's some, a piece of this also that underlying it all is, hey... Trust women, <laughs> trust them to know what is in their best yeah. interest. What are we saying? That a bunch of people in a state capitol in yeah. Washington, D.C. are in a better position to make a decision for her than she is yeah. in terms of what is in her best interest, the best interest of her ha- family, especially when we consider that the majority of women who receive abortion care are mothers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when they're making that decision about what is in their best interest, it, it takes into account usually so many people beyond herself mm-hmm. in deciding what is best. Yeah. Um, so, but but it truly was the decision when it came down to Amanda's point was really about cre- the creation of a healthcare crisis in America. Indeed. And because it is not only about abortion care, it is about access to reproductive care, access to doctors, access to OBGYNs. Um, the data shows us that in a state like Texas, there, it, there are OBGYNs in only half the counties in this state. Yeah. There's an OBGYN in only half the counties in this yes, very state. True. And you are getting
1: an amen from the doctor at the that end of the table. What and absolutely what I'm going to we're going pe- to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to ask our doctor about the state of health care in Texas without Roe. And we are going to ask our representative from the young generation who is essentially growing up without this right. Um, so much more with Vice President Kamala Harris and our wonderful guests. when our readout special One Year Post-Roe continues at this quickly.
6: Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood,
1: The Honorable Kamala Harris, Vice President of the United States, and my panel, Genesis Sanchez, an abortion rights advocate, Amanda Zarowski, lead plaintiff in the abortion access lawsuit against the state of Texas, Shannon Brewer, Executive Director of the Las Cruces Women's Health Organization in New Mexico, and Dr. Todd Ivey, who is an OBGYN here in Texas. And before we went to break, Dr. Ivey, we were sort of beginning to chat about the consequences, and the Vice President made an excellent point about when you eliminate abortion, you sometimes eliminate doctors.
0: And that is absolutely true. Um, we're seeing many effects, downstream effects from this. One of the things is on the education of physicians in our state. Uh, what we seen nationally is in states that have restrictive uh, abortion laws, there's been a 10% decrease in medical students going into the field of obstetrics and gynecology. And actually in the state of Texas, from uh, 2021 to 2022, which was after the passage of SB8, uh, there was a 19% decrease in applicants in OBGYN residency programs in our state. Now, this is important because you're in the second largest state in the nation. We have four of the top 25 largest cities in the U.S. And as the Madam Vice President pointed out, we have about 50% of our counties that have no practicing OBGYN. So that does not bode well.
1: And that is because people are afraid to go to prison. They're afraid if they have to treat their patient, they could wind up in prison.
0: So I think uh, many people don't understand the law. And I find my own friends don't actually understand what the Texas law is. And basically what the Texas law says is you can make that decision if it's a a, a life-threatening situation. But if we don't agree with you, we're coming after you. But Joy, here's
3: the thing. It, the doctor has been extraordinary in terms of the courage, because also this is requiring so much courage from doctors who believe that women should not be deprived of access to reproductive health care um, and the threats that so many have faced um, as a result of being outspoken. So I, I admire your courage to speak so openly and publicly about it. But I've talked to Amanda and I were in Tallahassee together, and her story, like so many, is a story of Going, needing emergency medical care and being denied because of the confusion. And what we're seeing, so many physicians and healthcare providers who are now really worried about what that does also in terms of access to all kinds of reproductive healthcare. The, in the top 10 states with the worst maternal mortality, In the top 10 states in the United States of America that have the worst maternal mortality, those top 10 states also have bans in place. Yeah. Think about what that means in the hypocrisy at play. When people purport to say that their position is because they care about women and children. Right. But yet you don't have and don't give them access to high quality and affordable care, including postpartum care. Let's also talk mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, And what that means, again, in terms of, you know, really conflicting signals, but actually hypocrisy at play.
1: And I wonder, Genesis, as our our representative of Gen Z, I'm going to assume Gen Z. I'm a young millennial. A young millennial. (laughs) A very young millennial. You know, I I just wonder. I mean, you this is for for, I mean, I'm not going to age myself, but at least I lived most of my life with full rights as, as as an American and as a woman for you it's gone like that.
7: Yeah. I, I remember a year ago when I heard the news, I was working and I was just kind of, you know, in the heat of the moment. I, I was like, okay, that's bad. That's really bad. And then a few hours later, I I saw something online about how um, the last clinic in Texas shut down. And I started to cry because I was, I'd thought of all those young people who now no longer can go to that clinic because they need the full gamut and spectrum of reproductive health care, right? Um, and I think, to Madame Vice President's point, this isn't just about abortion. This is about the entire spectrum of yeah. care. And young people are now afraid to seek that care, because we know that bans also disproportionately impact Black and Latina women. And they're the ones who are also being prosecuted for accessing uh, pills for helping their friends. Um, they might experience domestic violence from their partner for seeking abortion care. And so we're seeing the negative ramifications. And those are the those are just some of the stories we're hearing. They don't fully
1: encompass what people are experiencing privately. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I know when I was just out of college, I got all my health care at Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just, I wasn't going in there for abortions. I was going in there for everything because I didn't have health insurance. And so, I mean, can talk a little bit about, I mean, you ran a clinic, you were providing care in general for women.
4: Yeah, um, Women, they have nowhere. We were providing birth control. They have nowhere to get birth control now. Um, the reason we were doing it in Jackson is because they didn't have access. Um, so now I don't know what those women are going to do. And that's the thing that aggravates me the most is that they will take away so much, but they won't find an answer to you know, to provide basic needs for these women. And that's what's um, really detrimental to the women, actually, in Mississippi and everywhere.
3: Joy, you mentioned college. So my goddaughter um, is a senior, just graduated high school on her way to college. But she called me auntie. She said when the decision came down and she said, you know what's happening, my friends, whatever gender, are starting to make decisions about where they will actually go to college, mm-hmm. depending on what's happening in that state. Yeah. yeah, Because, of course, if you look at it, I think the number is something like 23 million women of reproductive age live in states that have banned abortion. And what that is going to mean for those 23 million, for the myriad of health care issues that are at stake, as we have just been discussing.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, it's, it's, it's having a real impact on, on all types of decisions that people are able to make. This
1: if my children were there out of college now, if they were still choosing colleges, I would not let them choose a red state. I'm just being honest. I wouldn't let them choose a state that banned abortion. But Can you talk some about the very specific medical consequences that
0: you're seeing, Dr. Ivey, taking taking place here now? Absolutely. We, we fully expect an increase in the maternal mortality and morbidity, uh, an increase in those rates. Now, the numbers aren't in yet. And then, of course, the pandemic complicates that. Uh, the last information from Texas was through 2019. You know, and we saw saw that the that, that maternal mortality rate was just about stable. Uh, but now we're seeing delays in care. Uh, patients are sicker and before they can be intervened upon. And it's absolutely gut-wrenching to sit there and see a woman get so sick when you know that you could help her before that ever happens. Um we are seeing increased strains on families. Families now have to travel. And, of course, women with fewer resources are disproportionately impacted by this. So now they take time off work, have to get child care, travel to New Mexico or another state. Huge financial strain.
3: Dr. Ivy, can you also talk a bit about, um, Joy, if you don't mind. No, please, <laughs> please. Absolutely. Um, I'm hearing countless stories of women who are um, in the process of miscarriage, intended to take pregnancy to term, and are in the process of miscarriage, and are having to travel from places like Texas to Colorado, places like Texas or Florida to Seattle, to get care, to to address their miscarriage. And, And the stories I've heard include women so afraid that during that plane trip, She might actually miscarry, but she cannot get care in the place where she lives. And think about what that means in terms of the emotional trauma that is, is reinforced by all of these laws. She's already experiencing emotional trauma because of what is happening. And then requiring her to go through TSA, get on a plane with perfect strangers to seek help if she can afford to actually travel.
0: And it's dangerous. And it's dangerous. It's absolutely dangerous. You know, I have a story. I walked into work one day, and there was a patient who had just had a baby about six months before, had chronic kidney disease and hypertension, and could not access contraception, and had a hemoglobin was very anemic. Her hemoglobin was about half of what ours would be, and she had ruptured membranes at seventeen weeks. Right. So. Because the baby still had a heartbeat, because the fetus still had a heartbeat, we were unable to provide care until her condition takes, becomes life-threatening.
1: That I mean, and this is, and I, and I, and I hope this is not triggering for you to have to, to talk about it, but I mean, they're real people. You are a real person that went through this kind of situation. Yep. And what do you, what does your doctor say to you in that moment? Well, the situation
5: you're describing is exactly what happened to me, and the laws in Texas were so new, and there was so much confusion, and nobody knew what they could or couldn't do. And so it just incited so much fear, not just for me, but for my healthcare team, because they didn't know what they were allowed to do with their professional training. And so you mentioned the emotional trauma. I couldn't leave the state, and if I had, I probably would have died. Um, So I had to just wait until I did become near death. It took three days. And the trauma of that waiting and being in terror and fear for those three days, not knowing what's going to happen while having just received this devastating news. I mean, it's it's cruel. It is inhumane.
1: And and the the reality is the people making these decisions aren't doctors. Hmm. They're a bunch of politicians
3: in state capitals or in Washington, D.C., Many of whom don't even know how a woman's body works, by the way. I might add, doctor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is true. You know, I I, I tell this story. We were at one of our elected officials' offices in D.C., and we were visiting, not discussing abortion. And this assistant brought this up to us and said, you know, y'all need to stay in your lane. You know, you don't need to be in politics. You're a medical expert. Stick to medicine. Now, I politely handled it. All right. However, my knee jerk response in my mind was, if you want to keep medicine out of politics, then you keep politics out Amen. of
1: medicine. Amen. Amen. And hallelujah. Amen. Well, uh, Amanda Zorosky uh, and Dr. Todd Ivey. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, we will be praying for you that whatever you want in life comes to That's you, right. and you've been through a lot. So we will please keep up with us on the lawsuit, Thank and we will keep up with you on that. Thank you so much. Thank, you. Thank um, you. So much more ahead with Vice President Kamala Harris and our wonderful guest. Stay right there.
5: Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and
6: Sundays with Jonathan
5: Capehart and follow.
6: we <laughs>
1: with Vice President Kamala Harris. Genesis Sanchez and Shannon Brewer are still with me. And joining the conversation is Annie Renault, Associate Editor at Upworthy, and Rachel Sweet, former Campaign Manager for Kansans for Constitutional Freedom. We are definitely going to talk a little bit about that. But I want to start with you, um, Madam Vice President, because you were headed to North Carolina. Yes. Which recently overrode the veto of the governor who attempted to stop an abortion ban. They now also, that's locked the entire South in. Um, Why North Carolina and what are you hoping to achieve there. Well, so I'll be there for the one-year mark
3: of the Dobbs decision, which is this Saturday in four days, to again discuss and, um, and to be right there at, at a ground zero mm-hmm. why this is an issue that all Americans should care about, um, independent of the choices they would personally make for themselves, right? This is fundamentally about freedom the right to make decisions about your own life and your own body and this is a foundational principle for our country we were founded on the notion that government should at some point stay out of people's business <laughs> yeah <laughs> to to say it in an academic way
1: <laughs> it's a
3: legal
8: term. <laughs> it's a legal matter legal <laughs>
3: right and when we think about this and connect this with so many other issues, um, I think we all have to stand up and say that, you know, we as a nation stand for the principle of freedom. If I may, I'll, I'll share with you another way to think of this. I've now as vice president met with over 100 world leaders, presidents, prime ministers, chancellors, and kings. When we as the United States of America walk in those rooms, We walk in with the authority to talk about the importance of democracy, of individual rights, human rights, rule of law. And in that way, we are a role model. We've held ourselves out to be a role model. Well, when you're a role model, everybody here at this table knows, people watch what you do to see if it matches up to what you say. People around the world are watching what's happening here. My greatest fear is women fighting for, for, for basic rights in various countries that their so-called leaders, autocrats, dictators, will look at them and say, well, you want to hold out the United States as an example? Look what they're doing. You be quiet. This issue, in addition to affecting real people every day, as we have discussed, also calls into play our commitment a foundational concept, which is that of freedom.
1: And, you know, Annie Renaud, um, we have a, a fundamental principle here that is also separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. And we know that for people who oppose abortion, for a lot of them, it is a deeply held religious issue. Yes. Um, and they, I think for a lot of people, they find that hard to separate from what they want done in law. Yes. And and I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Sure.
8: Um, so I'm a political independent which is the largest voting bloc in the nation. And I have zero interest in the partisan conflict about this issue. And I think most Americans are kind of there in this sort of messy middle of trying to figure out where they stand morally, where they stand legally on this issue. And part of the problem is that there's been this conflation of the moral and the legal. So I consider myself morally pro-life, in that I'm 48 years old. I have three children who are almost all grown and flown at this point. If I found out I was pregnant tomorrow, that would be a huge upheaval in my life. That would be an unwanted pregnancy. I don't want to get pregnant at this point. But if I did, I would not choose to have an abortion because of my personal religious moral beliefs about when life begins, the nature of the human soul and whatnot. But I also don't think that my personal moral religious convictions should be applied to everybody legally. Like, that doesn't make any sense. I wouldn't want anybody else's religious beliefs to dictate the laws that dictate my choices about how I live my life. I don't think that we should expect anybody to want that, especially as Americans. It's right there in our First Amendment. We don't establish religion. So regardless of how strongly I feel about the fact that I would not choose to have an abortion and that there are religious and moral reasons for that, and we can have those moral debates all day long, that's a different debate than whether it should be legal for people
1: to be able to make that choice. Rachel Sweet, um, you dealt with this, I'm sure, in Kansas. Kansas is a conservative state. The people there are very conservative. And yet. And yet. You led the fight to enshrine the right to an abortion or to stop them from taking away abortion rights in Kansas. And you're doing now the same in Kentucky and in other states. It is a powerful political issue, even when people have a moral Opposition.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is. I think the 2022 campaigns really taught us that we as Americans are far more unified on this issue than we are divided. A lot of prominent conservatives, when the Dobbs decision came down, remember, were saying, you know, this is about returning the issue to the states. We need to let the states decide. Well, guess what? The states are starting to speak. And when you give voters the opportunity to vote directly on this issue, they will vote to protect reproductive freedom every single time. And especially in states like Kansas and Kentucky, that doesn't just mean Democratic voters. That means Republican voters. That means independent voters. And- I think it's really powerful just to see that whether it's, you know, if it's a, it's a partisan issue in the halls of Congress, it's a partisan issue in our state legislatures, but in people's everyday lives, it's not a partisan issue. It's a healthcare issue. It's a privacy issue. It's a fundamental personal liberty and freedom issue. And that is how we dealt with this issue in Kansas because yeah, we had to talk to a lot of people that may not agree with us on everything, but when you really get down to what should the government's role be in this decision, Kansans, Kentuckians, Michiganders, uh, every state where this issue was Wisconsin. at the forefront have said that, no, we need to keep the government out of our business and we need to
1: protect the legal right to abortion. Is, is it an issue? I mean, I wonder if it's an issue. I think there's a, 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 pre- a presumption, you know, for Latinas, for people who are, you know, Hispanic. It's a moral issue and that they will not vote on it. that it will not move and it will not change. And I think there are a lot of Republicans who assume that this is actually going to be helpful to them to ban abortion in states like Texas. Is that true?
7: I don't think so. I think, uh, to Rachel's point, we've seen that uh, the majority of Americans support abortion and the access to abortion. And so that runs the gamut of people. That includes immigrant women. Um, It includes uh, people in red states, right? But because abortion bans target red states, those are also states where a lot of redlining happens, where people don't have access to the vote in ways that other people do. And so they, you know, they may want to vote for a pro-abortion candidate, but they don't have access to that, right? They can't. Um, and so I think it's more that, you know, I think there's a, there's a an idea that we are maybe more conservative or we lean into those Catholic ideals. But the reality is that just as Rachel said, what we are living day to day is very different from what we want politicians to do um, and what we, how we want them to vote. I think that's why it's so important, right? We need to keep politics off our bodies. Hello, red state,
1: Mississippi.
4: (laughs) I think, you know, I think she's right. I think we, a big part of the problem is that number one, we're not voting. That, you know, the, the, a, a big portion that should be voting is not voting and. They are making it harder and harder, passing, constantly passing different laws in each state to make it harder for certain people to vote, which are the people who are being affected by this the most. So we need to be fighting in these states for your voting rights. That's important. People didn't think that was important before. And I think they're starting to realize it because, you know, as I speak to people now, they seem to realize that it starts on that, that state level and that's how it becomes so big. And you've got to tackle it while it's on that state level.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, you, I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, if you do a, a, just a quick analysis of which states, from which states are you seeing attacks on the freedom to make decisions about your own body, um, the, the freedom to, to have access to the ballot box the freedom to love and marry who you love and and be open about that, you will see a significant overlap. And I couldn't agree with you more that what Kansas and your leadership and the leadership of so many people showed us is that when you remind people that they have power through their vote to weigh in on this issue, they do it. From Kansas to California, red states, blue states, we saw whenever it was on the ballot in the midterms, people voted in favor of the freedom of the American people to make decisions about their own body. And I think that should give us the momentum that we need to know that we have to encourage people to use their vote. Because ultimately, um, this is an issue that will be resolved by federal legislation that codifies, which means puts into law, the protections of Roe. But I also will remind people, let's not overlook local and state elections, because if you live in a state that has criminalized health care providers and provides for jail time, pay attention to who your prosecutor mm-hmm. is. Pay attention to who your state legislator is. If your state is passing laws to either protect the right or attack the right. Pay attention to who your attorney general is, who your governor is. Um, But ultimately, the United States Congress can put back in place what the United States Supreme Court took. The United States Supreme Court took a constitutional right. The United States Congress has the power— to put in place a protection
1: of that individual privacy right that all Americans should be entitled to. Well, that is a perfect uh, place for us to take a quick break because when I come back, I want to ask you all about this national landscape. First, what yeah. the administration can do, yeah. uh, what Congress might do, but also what some judges might do. We do, we are awaiting a ruling on Mifepristone, yeah. um, on whether or not we can have an effective national abortion ban or maybe even a legislative national abortion ban. Senator Lindsey Graham and others have talked about enacting that. We're going to get into that and talk about what we do next. Uh, so stay with us as our discussion continues with Vice President Kamala Harris and on our readout special one year post-Row. This great panel is coming right back. President Kamala Harris and our wonderful panel. Um, We want to talk what happens next. We are awaiting a ruling um, on the idea of whether Mifepristone can be banned. There is a Texas federal judge who has said it should be banned. What are the implications if that ban stands up to Supreme Court scrutiny? Joy, the implications are profound.
3: So let's step back and understand. Essentially what this lawsuit is doing is attacking the ability of the FDA Mm -hmm to determine what is safe and healthy for the American people to use, as has been prescribed by a doctor. Now, contextually, understand, the FDA has been doing this for 80-plus years. And their process is it is medically reviewed, scientists, peer-reviewed, and they take it very seriously. And when they make a decision something is safe and effective, it is because it is actually safe and effective. Right. Preston, they made that decision about that. Medication 20 years ago. Right. And it has been proven to be safe and effective for its prescribed use for those 20 years. These folks who are politicians are now encouraging lawyers to encourage a judge, not a medical doctor, <laughs> to decide and put in place their judgment over the judgment of the FDA. I ask people, you should, if you understand what this means, understand that you sh- ought to go and look in your medicine cabinet. And look at the drugs that the medications that you may have there could be anything from insulin to what you need for blood pressure, a chemotherapy drugs mm-hmm. are arguably up to attack. This is so wide sweeping and wide ranging in terms of the implications. Mm-hmm. And it is also another example of how we are in the midst of a health crisis. Where we are literally at a place where politicians urging lawyers, by the way, they forum shopped in finding that Correct. judge, um, are trying to replace the decisions of medical professionals about a medication that is prescribed and is safe and
1: effective for its use. It, 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 the, the implications are frightening. So we're fighting this at the moment state by state. It could soon, though, be national. But let's start with state by state, Rachel Sweet. Yes. You are headed to Ohio. Yeah. How do we do this state by state?
2: Yeah. So I'm really honored to be working with the team over at Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom. Please check out their website, ohioansforreproductivefreedom.org. But as we were discussing before the break, abortion ballot measures went five for five in 2022. We know that if the American people are given the opportunity to vote on this issue, they will stand united and protect the right to abortion. The problem is our opposition also knows that. And so instead of just attacking abortion rights, they are also waging war on direct democracy, on the initiative petition process, on the ability of states to even put this issue to a vote in 2023 and 2024. Ohio is a really great example. In August, voters will have the opportunity to vote on issue one, which is a constitutional amendment that would make it so that all future ballot measures must Mm -hmm. pass with a 60% 60% majority instead of a simple majority. And that was placed on the ballot specifically to make things harder, harder. for yeah. the reproductive freedom measure in November of 2023. So it's just a good reminder for all of us that there is so much intersection with these issues with voting rights, Absolutely. with direct democracy, Absolutely. and we have to use every single tool in our toolbox to ensure sure that we protect our rights.
1: And Annie know how do we have these conversations with people who have a moral objection? to abortion?
8: I think that the key is really keeping it in that realm of right to medical privacy, which is what Ro was really about to begin with. My daughter had uh, a ruptured appendix a couple of months ago, had a surgery, had an abscess come back like a couple of weeks later, had a second surgery. And in that process, you know, we were in the hospital room talking with her surgeon, talking with her doctors about the different choices that, you know, they were going to make in her care, where we had choices in her care and whatnot. I can't even imagine the ludicrous of having politicians in that room with us dictating what what choices we can make about that. And that's not even anything as consequential as pregnancy and childbirth and all of that. So yeah, just keeping it in the realm of medical privacy. It keeps it very simple.
1: Yeah. And Genesis, how do we make sure that people understand this nexus between the right to vote between their need for medical privacy.
7: Yeah, well, I'll speak to what you said. You know, Roe v. Wade was about the right to privacy. And so when you start to talk about, here are all the things that could go away, here are all the things that are coming down, yeah. uh, you know, I think that motivates people to either vote or to mobilize in their communities. And something that uh, we know to be true, generations before us know, we know now, is that you cannot ban abortion. You can yeah. only ban safe abortions, That's right. right. Yeah. And so... People are still going to seek care, and that's yeah. only going to get more and more dangerous. And Absolutely. so, I encourage people to continue to donate to their local abortion fund, so we can fly Texans to New Mexico and get that care that they need. And you're going to keep fighting.
4: Yeah, we're just going to keep opening clinics. We're just going to keep every time they close them down, we're <laughs> just going close, to keep open another open? one. Oh, yeah, and but we've we've opened three in a in a year's time. So we and we're. We're just determined that women are going to have access no matter what. Amen.
1: Freedom is very hard to take away from people. Um, Vice President Harris, it it makes people focus. They're focused. Yeah. How is the administration going to respond to this moment? Well, on the
3: Meprestron issue, for example, um, we are fighting in the courts. We're going to keep fighting because we also know that the majority of um, folks who, who receive this kind of care receive it through mifepristone, And so we are dealing with that. We are fighting on the also the point that is a fundamental point. No one, regardless of their gender or condition, should be denied access to emergency health care. Right. So in our previous panel, for example, we talked with Amanda. No one should be denied that. So we are fighting in the courts as it relates to that. But also, we are fighting on the issue of patient privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Absolutely, about the private decisions that uh, individuals should be able to make in consultation with their healthcare professional, and not worry about that information becoming public or being used, for example, by law enforcement. Right. And so, one of the things that we are doing is fighting against law enforcement having access to this private information mm-hmm. um, for the sake of criminalizing someone who who just essentially wants healthcare. Um, but you know, I'll say, Joy. The bottom line is this: we have got to understand the connection between this issue and elections. Elections matter. We've seen that in the work that has been done in the various states. We need a United States Congress who understands and appreciates the exact point that has been made at this table. It is the individual right, the privacy right of people to make this decision, not having their government make this decision for them. Yeah. And let me tell you something. Our president, Joe Biden... When that legislation gets passed to codify and put in place the protections of Roe v. Wade, mm-hmm. Joe Biden will sign it. All right. So let's get, let's, let's make sure everybody that you know is registered to vote. Yeah. Like you were talking about. Let's make sure that people understand the power of their voice on this because we've seen how it has an impact. And so much of this discussion that you brought us together for is about really fully appreciating that this is not some conceptual issue. That's right. It's about real people every day who, for the most part, are silently suffering. And we as a society that should care,
1: should care enough to vote. Amen. Well, I want to (laughs) thank, on that note, amen. You can get an amen even though it is not Sunday. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate that. Tell your neighbor. uh, Tell tell your neighbor. (laughs) Neighbor. Uh, I want to thank the Honorable Kamala Harris for making the time. Vice President of the whole United States who came and sat at this wonderful table with us and all of our incredible guests tonight for this very enlightening discussion. That is tonight's readout from Dallas, Texas. Thank you all for tuning in.